When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, December 5th, and sadly, Will is not with us today. He's fine, but he does live in Santa Barbara, and that whole area is dealing with a significant fire at the moment. We hope everyone stays safe, and we look forward to having him back next week when the power's back on. So even without Will, we have a great show today. Our guest is Ellen Powell. She is the founder and CEO of Project Include, a nonprofit org dedicated to diversity in tech. You may remember her highly publicized gender discrimination lawsuit in 2015 against her former VC employers. Before that, I want to let y'all know that for our next show, we have Tim Wu joining us to discuss net neutrality ahead of the major vote at the FCC about whether or not the net neutrality rules will be rescinded. Tim Wu actually coined the term net neutrality, and we are very excited to have him join us. But on today's show, I'm really excited to speak with Ellen Powell. And for our listeners who are less familiar with her case and for the larger problem of sexism and gender discrimination in tech, which is an issue I've thought a lot about and written a lot about, I've prepared something to help set the stage. Men at the top are falling. Everywhere. From Matt Lauer to Kevin Spacey to Bill O'Reilly to Representative John Conyers. Not to mention Travis Kalnick, the former Uber CEO, who once nicknamed the ride-hail company Boober because of the attention from women his status attracted. Just as in Hollywood and the media, men in the technology industry who either presided over inappropriate workplace cultures or who themselves have been accused of sexual misconduct are being called to account right now. Racism and sexism have long found a home in Silicon Valley, despite the rich history of women and underrepresented minorities' contributions to tech. This is manifested in directly racist and sexist behavior by the people who fund, start, and work at tech's top companies. These are the companies where engineers and designers are building the products we rely on to communicate with our loved ones, get our work done, and connect to news and critical information. Yet, while the media and entertainment industries are producing a flood of remarkable stories about sexual assault, rape, and harassment, the fallout in the tech industry has been markedly slower. Yes, some prominent venture capitalists and industry figures have stepped down for their inappropriate behavior. Dave McClure of 500 Startups, Robert Scoble, the famed Microsoft blogger, Both have been accused by women of sexual misconduct or making unwanted advances. But you have to wonder why. At the most powerful and moneyed companies in the world, Facebook, Google's parent company Alphabet, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, where men overwhelmingly dominate technical and executive roles, and where sexism has long been recognized as an industry-wide problem, so few stories have surfaced. Is it because men in tech are less sexist than men in media? No, I can tell you from personal experience that's not the case. 
It's certainly not from a lack of thirsty journalists gunning to investigate corruption in America's titans of industry. Nor is it due to a lack of forums for tech employees to safely discuss controversy in their workplaces. It could be a matter of ironclad disclosure agreements. Or maybe even a blindness that set in after years of speeches about community building and connecting the world, buoyed by CEOs who sometimes do the right thing, like quickly voicing opposition to Trump's travel ban, for instance. Perhaps, seeped in a culture where your innovative, progressive thinking is supposed to improve the world, it's hard to see when you might be embroiled in a system that's perpetuating many of the very evils you pit yourself against. Though there have been relatively fewer public oustings of major executives in tech, that doesn't mean women aren't getting hurt. Google, for example, is in the midst of a federal investigation by the Department of Labor, accused of systematically underpaying female employees across its entire workforce. Numerous female founders have come forward this year with allegations of men in venture capital who've leveraged their high profiles to harass, assault, and also silence victims. The women who have shared their stories this year were perhaps emboldened by Susan Fowler, a former Uber engineer who penned a blistering memo in February, which accuses Uber of fostering a culture of pervasive sexism and harassment, where men were protected when reported to HR because of their high performance. Numerous Uber executives have since stepped down. And then there was Google engineer James Damore, who wrote a widely circulated internal memo that suggested the dearth of women in tech as a manifestation of biological inferiority and not sexism. Google fired Damore after his memo became public and went viral, drawing a line in the sand at Google, but also elevating the discussion around the men in tech who agree with Damore and who perhaps exercise their sexism by disrespecting their colleagues or by their discriminatory hiring practices. These conversations are vital. And we wouldn't be hearing so much about sexual harassment and deep gender-based inequities in tech were it not for Ellen Powell. Powell is a former venture capital investing partner at Kleiner, Perkins, Clawfield, Byers, who filed a discrimination lawsuit against her firm, alleging she was passed over for a senior-level promotion due to her gender. After complaining to upper-level management, Powell was fired, and she added retaliation to the lawsuit. Powell lost her $16 million lawsuit in 2015 after turning down a seven-figure offer to settle the case. Though she lost, her case captivated Silicon Valley. It showed how Sheryl Sandberg's advice for women to simply lean in doesn't always work. Pow did lean in. She worked with men and took a seat at the table. When that didn't work, Pow sought justice, paving the way for others to do the same. Now more women are speaking out and not accepting the hush money either. And there's a lot of money to take in Silicon Valley. Alphabet, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon— all of these companies are wealthier than NBC or Fox or Weinstein's company, and all have massive gender imbalances. I imagine tech's time will come soon. Top executives from Facebook, Google, and Apple may be the next to make headlines for their fall from grace. And people in tech now call the recent wave of women speaking out the POW effect. As mentioned, today I'm interviewing Ellen POW, author of the new book Reset, My Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change. In 2015, she sued her former employer, a prominent venture capital firm, for gender discrimination. Pow was also an executive at Reddit, where she eventually serves as its interim CEO. Now Pow is the founder and CEO of the nonprofit diversity and tech org Project Include. Pow has an engineering degree from Princeton, as well as both an MBA and a law degree from Harvard. Thank you so much for joining us, Ellen. Thank you for having me. I also want to add I am the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the k Center, and I 
am a venture partner at Kapor Capital as well. That's great. Thank you so much. So right now, um, we're in a watershed moment in terms of women speaking up across powerful industries like media and entertainment about the harassment, abuse, and discrimination they've endured at the hands of powerful men. And women in tech are also speaking out, but it seems to be at a slower pace. Do you think that's because there are less problems in tech than other industries, or is it something else, like maybe about the culture? Oh, it's a good question. It's so hard to know. People ask me to compare industries all the time, and it's it's hard to know because you you really have to be in each of them to to compare. And then also, it's really so terrible. You know, everybody's had these terrible experiences. Who's to say who's is worse than somebody else's? I think what we're seeing in tech is um, it's also very hard to solve these problems because they're so entrenched. And I think the system has kind of beaten it down from people to prevent them from talking, to prevent them from raising these issues, and to prevent people from actually solving and addressing the issues in many ways. I think there are a set of new startups that are really interested in pushing things forward, and there are companies that are trying. But I think the traditional ways of solving these problems has been very much to stifle them. Not to say that that's not happening in these other industries, but I think tech in particular has portrayed itself as this meritocracy where you succeed on your merit. And this idea of it not being a meritocracy has been very hard to shake. I also think that um, in other industries, like in particular media, people have a brand and bringing together a group of people who are well-known and have that credibility from their um, fame and from their public work can be, um, you know, can can provide more credibility, even though everybody should um, be listened to and responded to. So it might be this this culture of positivity or this meritocracy might might be part of the the slow pace of tech in terms of how much is coming out compared to other industries. Yeah, I also think there have been a lot of people who have come out and been kind of punished for it, where, you know, you saw people like Kelly Ellis, like Emily Lamont, like um, Erica Joy Baker, you know, myself, you know, we spoke about about different problems in tech. You know, many of us spoke about um, gender discrimination. Many people spoke about being harassed. Mm-hmm. And nothing came out of it. I think this year was, as you mentioned, a watershed moment because we had people speaking up and being listened to and believed, but there hasn't been a real reckoning when it comes to solutions. What had changed this year was different, though, like when Susan Fowler, the ex-Uber engineer, who, a white woman who, who didn't press charges, came out that made her reception a bit different. I think there was a convergence of different things. I think... Gretchen Carlson speaking up and, you know, and being able to take down people at Fox made a big difference. I think the reputation of Uber as being not trustworthy and being a bad actor made it easier to attack them. I think all of these women who have spoken up time and time again um, made a difference. And I also think people were starting to have the conversations privately as well. So there was a receptivity to the issue. And there was an understanding that perhaps tech 
really isn't the meritocracy that we've talked about for so long. And I also think Susan did a very good job of writing a very impactful piece. Yes, it was very well written. And another question, since Google started sharing diversity data in 2014, the company's percentage of Black employees in technical roles hasn't really improved much at all. It was 1% in 2014, it's 1% now. The percentage of female technical staff went up from 18% in 2015 to 20% this year. The dial just hasn't moved that much. And yet Google's invested well over $200 million in its diversity and unconscious bias training efforts. Why is this problem so persistent? Are these programs happening in bad faith? I think they're happening too late. I think when you start your company and you haven't thought about these issues and you've set it up a certain way, it ends up becoming extremely difficult to change. So what happens at a lot of these tech companies, they build, I think originally many companies had almost an admissions committee where they looked at it as if they were people applying to graduate school. And they looked at the grades and they looked at the schools they went to and it became a very elitist and homogeneous set of people who were accepted. And then because that worked for them, they would bring in more of their friends or they would bring in more people that look like them. And it became systematic. And when those companies like Facebook, like Google, became successful, people thought that that was the pattern and also that their systems were the ones to copy. So you ended up with all of these companies following this kind of admissions committee format and structure and hiring all the same types of people. Do you think that one of the reasons why their diversity initiatives hasn't worked is because they didn't want to cede their own power? I think it's must be part of it. I spoke with a CEO recently who told me one of his board members said, you know, you have four white men on your board. You need to have bring some diversity to the board. And I told the CEO, I'm like, well, is he going to step down then? Like, what is he saying? Oh, you have too many white people, but he's one of the problems. Mm-hmm. So I do think that people aren't thinking about the real problems, which require people to to step down or people to make room or um, really, you know, changing the way things, decisions are made and how the work happens in order to bring in more voices and more uh, backgrounds. Now, it seems like you don't think this problem is intractable because of the work that you're doing now. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I see a lot of um, people that give me a lot of hope. So with Project Include and with um, the work at the KPOR Center, I get to spend a lot of time with early startups and their founders and their CEOs. And what I'm seeing in this next generation of leaders is this understanding, either because they are coming from diverse backgrounds or because they see the writing on the wall that, you know, the that the world is changing, the workforce is changing. And if I want to be a company that succeeds in the next twenty years, I need to make sure that I am building a company that is welcoming and inclusive of people from all backgrounds because that's what the workforce is going to look like or because they think that it's the right thing to do, which it is, or because they understand that if I don't have these different voices in my company, I can't hire the best people and I can't build the best product and I can't sell to as many consumers. So there's this new generation of leaders that has a very different perspective. And I also see that when I talk to students, like when I tell the stories of my experiences and of what has happened to other people, they're shocked, right? It is not something that's in their set of experiences. It's not something that they think is normal. One of the stories I told at Berkeley was about 
interviewing a VP of engineering candidate. And during the interview, I asked him, what do you think about diversity and diversity on your team? And he said, I really believe in diversity. I think it's so important. And that's why I'm willing to lower the bar to bring in people from diverse backgrounds. And the whole room gasped. I mean, I obviously, Berkeley has um, a much more progressive perspective, but this concept that, you know, saying something like that was so shocking when it seemed to this candidate interviewing for a VP role that it would have been a positive thing to say. Right. And so maybe there's uh, more hope in the future than the, the incumbents. Right. I, I definitely think so. I think the incumbents and the people who are, you know, kind of stuck in this way of not wanting to look at the numbers of, you know, continuing year after year to hire the same people. You know, I look at the investors, the venture capital firms, and they talk about diversity being important, but you look internally at their own organizations and they are not diverse. When you look at the limited partners investing in these venture capital firms and supporting their lack of diversity, it's, you know, it it got to change. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll have more of my interview with Ellen Powell in just a moment. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Now I have a question about your time at Reddit and the recent online speech debates. You left Reddit in part because of trying to clean up terrible message boards that were saturated with things like revenge porn, which is the sharing of non-consensual nudes of women, often from ex-partners. And you yourself experienced a torrent of abuse on the platform while you were the CEO. I'm curious what you think about Reddit's shuttering more of its message boards, as well as the wave of other tech companies following through with their user agreements that prohibit hate speech, like Cloudflare and Google kicking off the Daily Stormer, which was the website that organized the deadly Charlottesville white nationalist and neo-Nazi rally in August. Was this too little too late? Because you saw these hateful communities that were incubating for years online way earlier. Those online communities spilled out into the streets in Charlottesville. Yeah, I do think it's a, too little too late. I think the cultures of these companies is not are not oriented towards this problem, right? It's always been this heavy um, free speech rationale for letting anything go on the site. And when you do that, you don't build in the technology to um, try to track harassment. You don't build in the teams that you need to, to develop the experience as the internet evolves to be able to address new ways of harassing people online. So I think for me, the big issue was, do I, you know, where do I land in the balance between users being harassed and 
people being able to tell you whatever they want. And, you know, I came down on the, hey, we can't let users be harassed. I think people eventually learn that lesson. If you see Ev Williams, he recently gave an interview in the New York Times where he said, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't realize the Internet could be used in this way and, you know, and, and we need to address these issues. And uh, I think at Reddit, you know, we, I think when I stepped down, there was, you know, they allowed some subreddits to continue that I would have not allowed. And that ended up getting a lot of that negative element back onto the site that we had just spent so much time getting rid of. And then those, and then now again, you know, you've got to be willing to withstand this torrent of, of negative activity in order to get it out now. And that is really hard to do. So you kind of chip away at the edges, but you know, there's work that you need to do to get rid of that core element of harassment, and that's not easy. It's it's interesting when people say they didn't see it coming. Uh, what is the connection between digital platforms that have created homes and safe places for hateful communities for, for so many years that people have tried to point out and the lack of diversity in tech? Is there a connection there? It's interesting because, I, like, in, in my lens, I look at it in terms of harassment for for much of it. And if you are part of the core um, a homogeneous set of people in power, you don't experience harassment the same way that women do, that same way that people of color do, and certainly not the same way that women of color do, or um, people who are LGBTQA or people who have disabilities, you know, all of these people who are um, not part of that traditional establishment experience the internet in ways that are um, extremely toxic. So I do think that, you know, these people who, you know, started these companies, started these platforms and, you know, hired their friends and created these very homogeneous um, companies are not seeing everything that's happening on their site or they don't want to. And now they're starting to see it because it's such a big problem and it's become really hard to manage. A, a question about the uh, the hope for the future. Uh, if it is in new startups or, or, or new founders that, that do have a different set of priorities than the incumbents, it seems like they're entering into a rather you know, anti-competitive market. It's, it's hard for people to succeed who aren't already successful. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I see new industries coming up in tech all the time. Like Bitcoin didn't exist several mm-hmm. years ago. And now you see that this huge industry, you know, the, the value of the Bitcoin is tremendous right now. And you can see that the, these new companies are going to be successful and they're all, you know, less than a decade old. So there are these new opportunities that come up. Um, how do we fund them today? And, give people from diverse backgrounds opportunities to participate in the next wave of new companies and new industries. I think that, yes, there are these big companies that have taken huge swaths of opportunity um, out of the realm of possibility of being successful. You know, starting a search engine today would be a very hard um, business to, you know, overtake a Google, but if you are looking at these new areas that are constantly coming up, there are opportunities. And I do see there as being like this constant change in tech and these cycles in tech that allow people to succeed. But we just have to make sure that we give everybody opportunities to succeed 
and aren't concentrating the opportunities in specific demographics. Finally, what do you think would have happened if your story occurred just a few years later? Do you think it would have been taken more seriously today? I think it would have been taken more seriously today, but I don't know that we would be where we are today without it. I think there are just so many people who are, you know, um, talking about things that they wouldn't have talked about if I and all these other women hadn't come forward at different times and also men. Um, so I don't know. It's a good question. Unfortunately, you know, I, I, I sued when I did and we are where we are, but I think the whole experience has been very positive to me because I heard so many people who have been, um, encouraged to tell their own stories and share their own experiences and who continue to push the discussions forward. And I think that if we can't push these discussions forward, then we can't learn from them. But I think this next wave is what are we actually going to do about it? Like now we understand it's not a fair environment. There is a lot of harassment. There's a lot of bias. People aren't getting opportunities. What changes are we going to make to make sure that we don't continue on this path for the next 10 years. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us, Ellen. Thank you for having me. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, that's going to do it for today's show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us as well at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser. And Will, who we wish was with us today, is at Will Orinus. Thanks again to our guest, Ellen Powell, for joining us. You can find her on Twitter at EKP. We also have a favor to ask of our listeners. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and Stitcher and wherever you listen and leave us a review. This does a lot for helping us get the word out about the show, and we really appreciate it. If Then is a product of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Adam Munoz and Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Our awesome theme music is provided by Doug Chase. We'll see y'all next Wednesday. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.